Well, it is just so good to be back uh, in this circle with all of you today and to be continuing the conversation that we started almost two months ago now on the great book of Exodus, one of the most amazing stories in all of the Bible and one of the most influential uh, parts of the biblical narrative across time and space. We're going to be reminded of that influence again today. And speaking of the subject of influence, I just got to ask a simple question. Is there a chance that there is anybody here who has never heard of Taylor Swift? (laughs) Any Swifties in the circle? Just in case, one or two of you have been living in Antarctica without internet access for the last decade or so, Taylor Swift is arguably the most famous music and pop icon of our time. Uh, She is being featured, as I'm sure you're noticing, all over the place these days. Her recorded work, her concerts, now even her concert films have been shattering records that have been held for so long before her. She is the first musician to achieve billionaire status simply on the the revenues of her music, no endorsement contracts uh, included in, in, that, in that total. Her era's tour has contributed an estimated $4.4 billion to the U.S. economy this year. And you've probably noticed she's helping the NFL too <laughs> and their revenues. I mean, this is a phenomenon. Numerous publications have cited Taylor Swift as one of the greatest songwriters also of our time. She's, she's singing stuff that she herself has written. And in fact, I bet that if we were to bring the band back to do a little karaoke here and, and play any one of Taylor's top 10 songs, there would be a lot of people in this room who could be mouthing those words. I'm not going to bring the band back for that purpose. But that's how influential she's been. Now, I want to invite you to ask yourself this. Would you be even more impressed if you knew for absolute certain that Taylor's top 10 would would still be being sung, would still have influence on societies and cultures and individuals across the planet 3,500 years from now. What do you think the chances are that 3,500 years from now, her top 10 will still be in prime time? I think pretty small. I think pretty small. And that's a helpful perspective. Because there really is only one creator, one writer, one artist, one being whose top 10 enjoys that kind of longevity and influence over 3,000 plus years. And we're going to be looking today at that top 10 and thinking together about the significance of that music for our own lives. So to to just set the conversation in uh, context, let me just ask you another one of those do you know questions. 
How many of you know the name Joy Davidman? Doesn't look like too many, if any, in this room. Well, maybe you would know her by her married name, Mrs. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was, was married to, to, to Joy Davidman, and he regarded that union as a, one of the most significant leveling ups intellectually he had ever done. He regarded his wife as one of the most brilliant people that he'd known. And even though the writer of the Narnia Chronicles and so many other books, that's who C.S. Lewis is, for those who don't know that name, uh, was himself brilliant, his wife was arguably every bit as bright and maybe more so. And, and one of the books that Joy Davidman wrote was a book called Smoke on the Mountain. Smoke, not to be confused with Smoke on the Water. <laughs> a great tune, by the way. But, um, but Smoke on the Mountain uh, was a study of the meaning of the Ten Commandments. God's top ten list, as it were. And uh, I have found this book so incredibly helpful in understanding the significance of, of that particular part of the Bible that I thought I'd share with you a little bit of her insight uh, just as we begin to dive into this particular text today. Uh, early on in her uh, book, Joy Davidman gives us this very important historical frame for understanding the significance of the Ten Commandments. And what she does is describe the mindset that dominated the world at the time that the, uh, the Jewish people arrived uh, across the Red Sea, across the Arabian Desert, at the foot of Mount Sinai. And that's where we left them last week, as you may recall. Uh, she describes that in the world at that particular time, um, there was a point of view that dominated everybody. And I think this is really hard for us and, uh, to take in just to what extent this world that we live in today is different because of the Ten Commandments, because of what happened through the Judeo-Christian framework for life. So many of the, the institutions and patterns and traditions and values, even being enjoyed by people who have no faith at all today, owe themselves to the revolution of perspective that came about as the result of the giving of the law of God to the Israelites. Um, listen to how Joy Davidman describes the way that people lived before that. Everyone knew that the universe was a wild and chaotic thing. I, I love that, right? What's our series called? Wild, right. Everybody knew the universe was a wild and chaotic thing, a jungle of warring powers, wind against water, sun against moon, male against female, life against death. There was a God of the spring and, the, and another God of the harvest. There was a spirit who put fish into fishermen's nets, it was believed. And there was a being who specialized in the care of women in childbirth. And at best... There was an uneasy truce among all of these various spirits and gods, or so they thought. And at worst, it was an all-out battle for control between these various divinities. Now, she writes, along comes a fool. We would call him Moses. 
and along comes an insignificant tribe of desert wanderers. We call them the Israelites. And, and these, the, this Moses and these Israelites shouts that all of these processes of harvest and childbirth and all these things, all of these processes are actually one process. One process from a single source. The obvious many are the unthinkable one, she said. Or these people said. The Israelites, Moses, said. And monotheism, the belief in one God, was born. Was born. Now, David Min goes on to explain how, how utterly transforming to human history monotheism was. Talk about, uh, talk about a change in eras, back to the Taylor uh, vocabulary. The belief in one God, she says, slew a host of horrors. No longer did people have to live in fearful service to malign storm demons and evil gins of sickness and blighters of the harvest and unholy tyrants over life and death. Belief in this one great God, she says, destroyed the fetishes, the totems, the beast-headed bullies of old time that so many people had spent their time fruitlessly trusting in or trying to appease so that they could get what they needed from all of these powers out there. And belief in the one God who had revealed himself to and through Moses laid the axe to sacred trees watered by the blood of virgins. It smashed the child-eating furnaces of the god Moloch. It toppled the gem-encrusted statues of the peevish divinities half-heartedly served by Greece and Rome. And David Mint goes on to point out that people in ancient times, they lived with something that might be a little bit akin to what we would call today the Marvel Universe. Only there were way more villains than Avengers in, in their scheme of life. The old gods, they believe, fought amongst themselves. They loved and hated without reason. They demanded unspeakable bribes and meaningless flatteries to be served. And this is the really important part. Joy underlines this. While they were worshipped, a moral law was impossible. A code of ethics that could unite human beings and civilizations was impossible because what pleased one deity in the pagan world would offend another deity. And they could never agree on a common code. This, I suppose, is the, the danger in every age. Maybe it's the danger in our time. It's why, like Israel, we need to look up at the mountain. Because otherwise... We'll be fragmented. <laughs> we'll be distracted. We need to recognize a God greater than, than, than the God of any one tribe or theme, greater than any party or passion or personal interest, greater than Russia or Ukraine, greater than Israel or Palestine, greater than America or China. We need to lift up our vision, lift up our eyes, 
Lift up the vision of our families, our friends, if we have influence over them. To a God who is so much greater than all of the petty idols yammering for our allegiance and twisting our character and setting us against each other in way too many ways. Because only then, when we catch that vision, might we give ourselves to a moral law and a spiritual grace that could turn humanity away from the selfishness and the hatred and the violence that is everywhere today. Our ancient forebears were subject to the same distraction and destruction that we are in our time. But as Davidman writes, then came the knowledge of God, capital G, in the singular. An almost unimaginable person, she writes, a single being, the creator of heaven and earth who could not be bribed with golden images or children burned alive, a God who is loving, only righteous, holy too, a being who asked for your whole heart, not just a tip, not just a little piece of you, but who wanted a relationship with all of you. This is what Moses and the Israelites were able to convey to the world. And with that concept, a God-ordered universe was envisioned, and people set about accepting the moral law of the Decalogue, as it was called. The Decalogue. I know we call it the Ten Commandments. But the Greek term for it literally means the ten life-giving principles. Deca, ten. Lagos, the ordering, life-building principle at the heart of the universe. We're going to meet the Lagos later in the New Testament in John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Lagos, and the Lagos was with God, and the Lagos was God. And that word, of course, comes in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. So the Ten Commandments, properly understood, are not burdensome laws. They're life-giving principles. They really are. Joy Davidman calls the top ten a shining bridge stretching between earth and heaven with the potential to shape a new kind of consciousness, a new kind of culture, a new kind of kingdom. When our boys were growing up in our house, we have three of them, they were wonderful, rambunctious, great kids. Um, they're great adults today. But uh, like all parents, you know, we were looking for ways, practical things we could do to sort of help shape them in various ways. So we, we were given a, um, a framed version of the uh, Ten Commandments, and we put it up on the wall next to the sink in their bathroom, figuring maybe it would sink in, right? <laughs> maybe it would. And I hope that, you know, as they're brushing their teeth, they're kind of looking at it. And some of it's starting to, to soak into their, 
into their minds. A very kind person in this church's life commissioned the creation of a a wood-carved rendition of the Ten Commandments that is now uh, put up on on the stone wall as you head into the sanctuary here at our Oak Brook campus. You can take a peek at that today if you feel like it. But the question I, I, I'm wondering is, have you reflected on them lately? Have you thought about the Ten Commandments and what they mean for yourself? In fact, out of respect for God's law, the top ten, I want to invite you today to, to say them with me. Would you do that? I'm going to ask you to stand if you're able. And if you're online, and you can join us in this if you like. Again, only if, if you're able to do that. And I want to invite you to read responsibly with me. I'm going to read the italicized uh, words from Exodus chapter 20. Please read the bold-faced ones when those come up. Exodus 20 and verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall not make for yourself an image, hold on to that word, we'll come back to it, an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, those images, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, which means I want all of you. I want all of you. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns." You shall not murder. You shall not steal. This is a really hard one. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So what does this really mean? (laughs) And more importantly, what does it really mean for us? Uh, I will acknowledge that that we could easily spend all day uh, thinking. We could do a whole series uh, on the Ten Commandments. We probably ought to one of these days. This, I mean, there's a lot here. And in fact, Jesus valued the, the Ten Commandments so, so much that he actually said that not a jot or a tittle, not, not, and that means not a dot on the I or a, or a, or a little mark uh, that crosses a T, will, will pass away. Uh, that, this, that this law is that important. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount, some of you may not know this, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon recorded in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is actually a commentary 
on the Ten Commandments. It was like Jesus recognizing that by his time, by the time he, first century, uh, was there, that, that people had sort of lost an appreciation for how rich and deep and life-giving this way of life was meant to be. And so he, he gave a Sermon on the Mount that sort of stretched out the understanding and helped people really get it. This is what I'm shooting for. This is what life in all of its fullness can look like. And when Jesus was pressed by a religious leader to, to, to tell him what was the greatest commandment, and it's important for you to know this, that by the time Jesus walked the earth, uh, the, the religious people of, of many different ages had added on to the list of the ten. It had gotten longer and longer and longer. There were actually hundreds of commandments now that had been piled on, obscuring just by their multiplicity, I guess, the clear focus that the Ten Commandments originally had. So much so that when somebody asked him the question, so what's the greatest one? If, I mean, this is too complicated. There are all these commandments. I, I can't keep it straight. Jesus was very happy to answer. He says, this is what I want you to remember. This is what you focus on. The greatest commandment is, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Or as you'd like to be loved. Treated yourself. Now as you can see from this chart, you can think of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the top ten, as a helpful picture of some of the basic ways that we practice Jesus' great commandment. That the first five are about how we practice a love of God. And the second five are about how we live in such a way that, that we pursue the good of our neighbor. That we uphold the good of our neighbor. Uh, I'm, a, I, I'm thinking to myself as I look at that list that this is a helpful inventory for me to go back to from time to time. How is it going for you in all of these areas? I'm aware that a lot of us have been exposed to so much religious legalism over the course of our journey through this world that, that we have this tendency to think of the Ten Commandments as just another set of burdensome expectations. We need to remember that, that, that the Decalogue was given by God to his people out of love for them. In fact, he often said, if you obey these commandments, it's going to go well for you in the land. That gets repeated many, many times throughout the Old Testament is, hey, keep these commandments because I want it to go really well for you in life. Um, so if I had Taylor Swift's artistic gifts, I would find a way of making this even more memorable for people. If I could boil it all down into just 10 words that, that you could focus on and, and think about, if I had her ability to kind of string together a simple lyric in that way, in fact, if I could put it to music and then develop some dance moves to it, work on that for me if you would, um, this is how, these are the 10 words I would use to sort of sum, summarize what it is that the 10 commandments are pointing us towards the first word is, is the word worship. Worship. And, and worship is simply the act of demonstrating the worth, 
W-O-R-T-H, worship of God. It, it's, it's a recognition of what he's worth and of orienting our lives towards pursuing him. It's putting God first. It's knowing him, making knowing him and serving him first in our lives. It's this recognition that God is our source, he's our savior, and he's our sustainer, meaning that, that our bodies are holding together right now. Uh, the, 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 the universe is, is working the way it is right now because he is doing it. He is holding it all together. Uh, worship is, is the process of exalting and enjoying God as the central purpose of human life. And if we forget that, if we forget the wonder that is God, we miss out on so much. We forget who and whose we ourselves are and what life is all about. So my question is, are you worshiping him? Is God number one for you? And how does that show? What are the ways that your life is ordered that reflect your sense that you're about worshiping God with all of your life? Not just in a church building, right? But the way you go about your daily life. The second significant word I want to call out is the word imagination, which comes from that word image. Um, it is really easy to get captivated by images. Have you noticed that? You know, you're talking with somebody in a conversation and then something comes up on the screen. It's squirrel. You know, it's, it's like images are so powerful. And, and, and I guess some of the images can be beautiful images, but some images can be destructive. And whether it's the image of celebrity or of pornography or of, of just stuff, uh, all of the stuff of idolatry, the kingdom of thingdom that's around, these things can come to own us. Right? They just become so powerful in our lives. Think of the amount of screen time that it's just about being glued into these images that are grabbing our brains and occupying our attention. Even our concept of God can harden into this convenient little self-serving image. You know? He's the God of my party. He's the God of my preferences. He's the God of my comfort. He's the God of my, you just name it. You fill in the blank. And we can forget the wonder of who God really is. So think about this. What are the images that are owning you, your attention? How is your own understanding of God, perhaps, a bad substitute for the glory of discovering the wild God? <laughs> I mean, every time you come into church, I'm hoping you're coming in going with this little prayer. God, teach me something I didn't know about you. Blow out the sides of my little box. Show me more of who you really are so that I'm not worshiping an image idol of even you. The third word the Decalogue suggests is the word reverence. It's actually not in the text, but that's the summary idea there. The explicit idea is that we should pay attention to where we may be trivializing the name of God which is to say his essence. The concept of the name of someone in ancient times was understood to be their essence. And, and you know that's true because like if you're, if you're walking through the building or you're at school and suddenly you hear your name called out, what do you do helplessly? You turn. 
Names have such power in them. Our, our use of the name of God is so important. The Israelites, you know, do you know that they, they didn't mention God's name? When we read the Hebrew text, the, God gave his name to Moses. He says, I am who I am. I am is my name. And the, and the Hebrews rendered that in four consonants. Y-H-W-H. And, but they never said it because they felt it was too holy and too awesome. They substituted uh, phrases like the Lord. Whenever you read the Lord, if you could get to the Hebrew underneath it, you would find the Y-H-W-H word. Uh, but they wouldn't say it because they didn't want to cheapen the awesome name of God. How have you and I gotten maybe a little too comfortable with the way we use the name of God? I mean, I've heard it uttered sometimes on golf courses and not in flattering ways. <laughs> but do we understand, do we have a proper reverence so that when we use the name of God, we know we are invoking the most beautiful, magnificent, wonderful reality in the whole universe, are we using the name in vain? The fourth key word in the Ten Commandments is Sabbath. Sabbath. And it strikes me as a word that was once pretty central to life in Western civilization. In fact, we ordered a lot of life according to the Sabbath in Western civilization. It was never done perfectly. Uh, but but it was done in a way that we've largely forgotten today in, in our time. God has designed us to rest regularly in him. He's designed us to do this. And, and he wants us to do this as a way of remembering that we are not masters of the universe. We don't have to control it all. We can take a break. We can go to sleep. He's got it. He'll still be at work. And, 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 and it's very, very important that we also remember that, that our ability to master other things within our control is directly related to how well-rested we are and how well-related we are to him. And the Sabbath is about both of those things. So my question to you today, practically speaking, is where are you going to take your next Sabbath? Where are you going to give yourself the opportunity to take a whole day and really rest and, 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 and shut off things and just ask God to speak into your life? The fifth word is honor. And, and the invitation there is specifically to honor our mother and father or maybe by extension elders in general. But what I think that is really about is a call to recognize in humility and in gratitude our place in the chain of grace. It's to remember that we didn't invent ourselves. We didn't birth ourselves. We did not come up with ourselves. We did not create the, uh, the genetic material that went into who we are, that we we're part of a long chain of a remarkable grace 
And, and if we're unable to acknowledge the debt that we owe to those who carried the baton of life before us, then how are we going to ever recognize our debt to God? If we can't just do it one generation back, how do we ever really properly worship God? The sixth word is life. Amidst this vast, cold, dark cosmos that we inhabit, the miracle's life. I mean, people I know are always um, really vexed by suffering. It's like, this shouldn't be. People shouldn't suffer. They shouldn't get ill. They shouldn't go through the experience of death. But friends, you can be an atheist. Just get a telescope out. Look out into the space beyond. You will recognize that the whole universe is all about death and decay and vacuum and coldness and darkness. That's everywhere. That's the norm. The miracle to be explained is life, laughter, love, light. And these are his gifts. It's just amazing what we've been given. So the politically incorrect truth is nobody has a right to life. And the equally politically incorrect truth is nobody has a right to choice. Life and choices are the gifts God has made to us. They're the good gifts he's given us. And this staggering gift must be protected and preserved and never taken wantonly, selfishly. The unborn life, the disabled life, the impoverished life, the refugee life, the life of people destroyed by terrorists, the life of non-combatants ground up in the gears of war, all of these lives, your life, very precious to God. Very precious to God. And I know that there are these moments in time, maybe we're living in one now, where to restrain the progress of evil and the taking of even more life, some serious force has to be used. I'm a realist in this way. But we must always remember as we use the powers we have to restrain evil that we do not become yet a larger force of evil. And, and, and savage more and more life. So where are you and I acting as champions of life? What more could we do? What more of our rights could we voluntarily sacrifice? What different choices could we make to restrain the spread of murder and to advance the cause of life? Then there's the seventh word, uh, faithfulness. Faithfulness. You may have heard the uh, the amusing story of the, 
of Moses coming down from the Mount Sinai and saying, I got some good news and some bad news. The good news is I've whittled God down from 100 to just 10 commandments. And they say to him, well, what's the bad news, Moses? He said, the bad news is uh, the one about sex stays in. The law against adultery stays in. I, I, I prefer the word faithfulness here as the positive aspect of what God's seeking. God's a covenant keeper. God makes promises and God keeps the promises. And, and he wants us to make covenants and promises and keep those things too, even when it gets very hard. That's what the covenant's for. It's gonna get hard. You want to have made the promise or be in relationship with somebody who's made a promise to you. And throughout scripture, God models this again and again when it's really hard, when Israel is behaving very, very badly, God doesn't give up on them. He sticks with them. He does this with you and with me too. So where are you demonstrating extra mile commitment in a relationship that's hard? In a situation that's really difficult right now? Who besides me are you enduring when it would be natural to give up? And conversely, where have you forsaken a commitment you once made? And could it be time to return to it and to be even more faithful with it? The Eighth Commandment is as simple as the word boundaries, boundaries. And the big idea is we must not take what isn't ours. It's not just that we're not supposed to steal in the obvious sense. I think this commandment, if you think about it in its full uh, interpretation, extends to not taking more than we should in lots of areas of life, not taking more than our fair share from the planet that our descendants are going to inherit. Not taking more from the corporations or the organizations we head up than, is, than it is truly fair to all of the people in the organization. Not taking uh, more than our fair share from, from the government funds that are linked to our grandchildren's future. Genesis 3 reminds us that, that really the, it was the failure to respect reasonable boundaries that turned the garden of creation into a jungle. And we've been struggling with boundaries ever since then. So where are you or I, in a sense, stealing rather than stewarding, and, and how could we do better? That's the, the helpful insight of the eighth commandment. The ninth word is truth. Truth. Have you noticed there's a lot of debate about truth these days? about what's fake, what's real, what's true. We did a whole series on this some months back. What, what constitutes truth? We're all tempted, I think, to, to be selective about this. We're tempted to categorize and slot people or, or to shade the storylines of life in ways that are favorable to us. But God calls us not to do that. God calls us not to, to give false testimony because even a half-truth is a half-lie and a half-lie isn't the truth. It isn't the truth. God calls us to, to, to really lean in to trying to discover truth about people and about issues and about things and not just go flying off and 
shooting our mouth off about things that we just aren't, we don't have the full-orbed picture about. He wants his people, I think, to learn what is, not what we'd like it to be or what we've heard from somebody else or what might work for our side of the conventional story. Jesus says, I am the truth. I'm the Lord of reality. Therefore, well-researched opinions, well-researched facts are our friends. Even when those facts aren't comfortable or convenient or they do blow out the side of our preconceived notions, this is what we want to be about, God says. So, your life, my life, what are the issues? Who are the people where you and I need more truth so that we don't end up giving false testimony? And finally, the tenth word, contentment. Contentment. I don't think you will be surprised by the biblical assertion that envy eats us. It's like Pac-Man, right? Envy eats us up. Covetousness, uh, which is envy, blinds us to all the good we already have. It, It drives us into debt we can't afford for things we don't really need to impress people we don't really like that much. I mean, this is what envy can do to us. Covetousness wrecks our capacity for the very neighborliness that that enables us to make sure everybody has enough. So how can we be more content and less covetous? Is there more to the meaning of the Ten Commandments than I'm telling you? You bet. Is there even more to God's holy vision of what's really good? You can count on it. That's why we keep coming back week after week to study God's word together. But but if we could start just here, just with the top ten, just with that definition of the principles and practices that make for a good life, if we elected officials on the basis of their commitment to these virtues, if the heads of companies and organizations made their resource decisions on the basis of those values, if we instructed our kids and if we lived ourselves on the plumb line of this vision of life, is there any doubt in your mind that we could build a better world, that we would have a better world than it sometimes feels like we do have? So how long has it been, and I'm almost done here, how long has it been since you have taken an inventory yourself? Since you've sort of looked at that top 10 list and and lined up your life next to each one of those things and said, Lord, would you just illumine for me where maybe I've just slipped off the beam? how long has it been since you, you really thought to yourself, I'm not just going to lip sync this stuff. I'm going to sing it with my life. And, and thankfully, God has grace for us when we mess up. He has forgiveness for us when we recognize that we've not been doing too well in a bunch of these categories. 
and we turn to him and say, Lord, help me. I want to start again. He's got grace enough for you. But let me just close by saying this. You are needed right now. Your willingness to live by the, at least the Ten Commandments is needed in our time as it is needed of me. So let's be the voice. Let's be the visionaries. Let's be the practical validation of the way of life that God has marked out for us. Let's walk from here where we are today toward the promised land ahead by the light of his commandments. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you that your word is a light unto our path. And we just ask you to take something of what has been said in this space today that is emblazoned in your word and to imprint it deeply upon us and to make it a guidebook for us, a, a guide path for us as we go from this place. That we might, Lord, be people who, who not only walk in your ways, but glorify you by the way we walk and bless others in this world by the way we live. This world that you so love that you sent Jesus to be our Savior. For it is in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen.